Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcoming the virgins fair to live a noble life in the castle known to all the Count's infernal wife. She invites the peasants with endless lavish foods, but when evening spreads its wings, she rapes them of their blood. Countess Bathory, etc., etc. The lyrics. Well, the first verse, at least, of Venom, Countess Bathory. This is episode 96, Vegetators Anonymous, and it's about time I got around to it. It is the life of Countess Elizabeth Bathory, or Esbit, I suppose it would have been something like that in old Hungarian Bathory. Um, As I continue, a sort of, well, what have I called it? Heavy metal heroes, I suppose, figures from history who have had some sort of impact upon heavy metal, upon the scene, the aesthetic, the lyrics. And I suppose Bathory lives long, or the name lives long in heavy metal infamy. Um, so unlike some of the other heavy metal heroes I've podcasted about, she lent her name to not only one of the most famous metal bands of all time, obviously Bathory, but being the subject of songs by, well, it's countless really. Um, what stick out to me, I suppose, is Tormentor, Cradle of Filth, wrote a whole album about her. Few characters, I suppose, from history have captured the imagination of people in the same way, at least not in the scene. Um, Last, you know, Rasputin is a very interesting character, but I don't think was really captured in the sort of heavy metal lexiconography or whatever you want to call it. Of course, Lovecraft had a huge impact, but it was more his writing as opposed to him as a person. But this podcast really about Elizabeth Bathory trying to sort of I guess figure out what is myth what is fantasy a little bit difficult after 500 years you say and yes indeed over 500 years she is a fascinating character from history and a real character in history let us also add not least um, I think because she was a woman in a time when most history was written around the deeds of men but the undercurrent of something of an almost S&M sexual nature breeds something of an enduring fascination we have with her story. Um, Humans have always been the same. 
and the web of lesbian neuroticism that seems to lurk in the shadows of her story excites the imagination of many now as it did then over 500 years ago. We don't change much, do we? Really? I suppose gospel around the village is now just um, a, a shared story via a click, but we are always and always have been fascinated by stories of titillation. Of course, the growth of the horror movie over the post, well, I mean, you could call it the 1920s and 1930s, but I think especially post-World War II as we move into the 1960s, um, you know, Hammer Horror and all of those kind of things, they helped shape the myth and the legend. Numerous films, um, too many to mention, really, have lent into the vampiric and the uh, pseudo-erotic, sub-sadomasochistic uh, um, story of Countess Bathory and shaped our view of history. But she, like Vlad Dracul, was a real person, not a figment of our imagination. And I think sometimes people forget that. They assume all of these stories somehow to be myth and fantasy. I mean, of course, there are um, no doubt elements of myth and legend as they disseminate through the not just decades, but centuries where people have no doubt um, added components to the story and there's an element of no doubt some form of cultural Chinese whispers going on here um, where everyone adds a little bit extra from village to village from decade to decade from century to century but she was indeed a very real person and I think sometimes that can be lost so let's get into it as I've been promising for the last couple of weeks possibly even longer there are other political things that I sort of wish I would like to speak to um, you all about, but I think they can wait a week or two or three or whatever, as I know for a fact that some people get bogged down in some of the political conversations or the cultural conversations. And least of all, I just get sometimes a bit tired of it. And you need a little bit of historical, vampiric, uh, sub-erotic light relief, something like this. So is there any real truth to her story? Um, well, obviously, I did quite a bit of research um, for this particular podcast. There was a few books I tried to uh, find that I'd read in my late teenage years, a few documentaries to watch, um, various things here and there, essays written online, and they veer from one to the other. They veer from, as I said, the sort of hammer horror depiction of her all the way to the other side um, with rather uh, sort of boring academics considering her whole story to be little but fiction and to be nothing but a medieval land grab behind it. But let's have a look. Um, is there any real truth to her story? Or are the echoes that we get 500 plus years later, and it is that long ago, simply gossip and the stuff of nightmares told to children down through the ages, village horror handed down through the centuries? It's hard to say. Of course it's hard to say. It could, on the one hand, have been a simple land grab. A widowed woman, in simple terms, in charge of too much land for her enemies um, and her family and those who would wish her deposed, um, simply conspired together to convict her of all of these heinous crimes and get her locked away and then divide her land and riches amongst them. I mean, this is the practical uh, explanation for her entire story and probably there is a great element of that that is true but it wouldn't make a particularly great podcast would it um, so was she then simply stitched up 
by all of her relatives and fellow nobles um, and then simply locked inside her castle, inside her dungeon till her final days so others could take her lands. A few documentaries I watched, as I said, in preparing for this would seem to suggest so. And clearly there is no doubt this would be normal for the time. Um, one only has to look at the early Catholic Church, for example, to see the Inquisition framed in these terms. It would be very easy to say that um, someone within a village might not dislike, might set, say, covet someone else's land and go, well, he or she must be a witch. And therefore that land gets divided out after they are burnt at the stake or whatever else. Um, and there is a, probably a rather a rather boring, dull and not very romantic um, overview of the Inquisition, which had started, I think, in the 1430s or something and carried on for the next three or four hundred years. Um, so certainly was going. Um, it was underway when we, uh, during the lifetime of uh, Elizabeth Bathory, but of course in a different part of the world, different part of Europe. Um, and one could certainly see many things back then in the 13th, 14th, 16th, 17th and so on, centuries as simple land grabs, i.e. accuse someone you want to get out of the way as a witch and then you can take their lands. We, of course, do see, I guess, echoes of this throughout council culture. Yep, I couldn't go a podcast without saying that, etc. No, maybe not. Well, anyway, a kind of noble land grab, let's call it that, and we shall get into that. Then, on the other hand of the spectrum, um, on the other side of it, we get the stories of the vampire countess bathing in the blood of virgins for eternal life. Um, this also seems maybe a bit beyond the pale. So what is the truth? Um, and no doubt, no doubt you're tired of hearing me say on the podcast, the truth is in the grey area, as with everything. But certainly the amount of testament that exists against her name, accusing her of debts beyond count must stand for something. So let's have a look at her timeline, her lifeline, all of those kind of things. She was born, I think, to a cruel age. This is one thing... We must not forget, and maybe one thing, at least in my opinion, some of the historians who are absolving her of almost everything, in some cases, maybe sometimes forget that peasants were owned by the noble class. We're talking here um, mid to late 16th century. So like 1550 to 1600. Um, peasants literally had no rights, absolutely nothing. You've probably seen that, um, seen the scene in the life of Brian where the, the peasants are out uh, collecting mud and they start arguing about systems of communist government and all that kind of thing. But um, yeah, the peasant class were literally owned by the noble class. Their word was worth nothing. And against that, um, you know, the nobility um, basically were all powerful. And this was, a f you know, of course, the nobility inherited this power um, through nothing other than birth. So Elizabeth Battery was born into riches, born into nobility, born to high nobility on August the 7th, 1560 in northern Hungary. Um, the south of the country, let us not forget, was occupied by the Ottoman Turks. You probably know, of course, the story of Vlad Dracula that he went to fight the Ottoman Turks. You probably know that um, famous Marduk song from the album Heaven Shall Burn When We Are Gathered. And that would be... Dracul va domni din nou in Transylvania. 
Um, actually, one of my favorite Marduk songs and one with about 14 verses, I think, throughout that song. I would not like to have to sing that song live. But the south of um, the south of Hungary, um, I suppose, would be nowadays Romania um, and further east was occupied by the Ottoman Turks. And they will become sort of important, um, a sort of important backstory to the story of Elizabeth Bathory. So she was born August the 7th, 1560 in northern Hungary. Um, and as she grew up, she learned to speak five languages, including Greek, German and Latin. Um, she was said to have been a sickly child. And we have to consider um, that back then it was quite normal for the interbreeding of the noble families across Europe, for them to suffer from mental illness and other maladies. You've probably seen the madness of King George. In fact, if you look back through an awful lot of the history of the nobility of Europe, you will find many, many cases of them simply being, um, well, what's the polite word for it? Let's just say that interbreeding, this is what it does to you. Um, it gives causes you mental illnesses. And there were there was many, many examples of mental illness across the noble, um, the, uh, the noble families of Europe at this time, including also in their features. We talk about the famous noble cleft palate, the, you know, the chins, the whatever else. You don't have to dig very deep to realize that um, many of these families were just intermarrying. And she was no different, really. And at a very young age, um, she was married off at the age of 10. Yep, indeed, 10 to Count Ferenc Nadazdi. So she was married at the age of 10 and um, sent to sent to the estate of his family to learn the ways of womanhood. But there was several, you know, reports. There were several things written that at a young age, she was said to have delighted in viewing the execution of a local gypsy accused of stealing, who was stitched alive into the carcass of a horse, whereupon our... Um, heroine was said to have laughed manically as a child. This was a cruel age where human life often mattered little, and certainly the life of peasants in the serf class were next to worthless. And there's also something that we kind of forget, and that is, if you look back on the um, the life expectancy of somebody in the 16th century, um, it's going to be somewhere around about 35. Maybe, maybe a few people lived into their 40s, but very, very few. The average is going to be about 35. And that average, I suppose, when you move into the peasant or serf class is going to be even lower. And the amount of children that would have died before four or five or six years old is huge. So life was kind of cheap back then. It was cruel and brutish and short. Um, so very often when you look back throughout history, what you do forget when you look at back at some medieval times is that the characters along the timeline of maybe the story that you're reading, you forget that sometimes they were teenagers. Counts of this, um, rulers of this, monarchs of this, kings of that, etc., etc., princes. And there are many, many examples often become um, the inheritors of great power at 11, 12, 14, 15 years old, sometimes even younger and it's no wonder that sometimes you read back throughout history and you go what the fuck is going on what were they thinking of course there are huge other cultural religious scientific political things going on but at the same time you are very often reading through a story 
and some of the main characters are, well, little more than children, as evidenced in the story of Elizabeth Bathory, married at the age of 10 um, and engaged to a 15-year-old count, Count Nadasdi. Um, this was not uncommon at the time. And like I said, she went to his estate, the estate of his family, to learn the ways of womanhood. And this was the year 1570. Um, it is said that she was rather sexually active at a young age and um, had an illegitimate child with a local peasant who her husband is said to have castrated and then thrown to wild dogs to be eaten. So you can see, at least in these testaments and these reports, that she was subjected to at least a form of sort of external cruelty around her. She was able to observe acts of great cruelty, which I suppose now seems shocking to us. But at the time, I would imagine are far more commonplace. As I said, life is a bit sort of cruel and brutal and short. And to have lived outside the castle walls is to have lived in a lawless, wild, reckless place where, without a doubt, life was even more short and brutal. So the year is 1574. She is married at Kieste Castle, which is now in Slovakia. A gothic ruin, as you can imagine in your dreams or your nightmares or whatever which you choose, um, that is exactly what you would imagine the castle of Countess Bathory would have looked like. And you can go and visit it. You can go and see these kind of things. Like I said, these are real people who lived in real times. It's just myth and legend have grown up around them to slightly distort our perception of their history. But her husband spent much of the following years from 1591 in the south fighting the Ottomans, whereupon his cruelty in battle gave him the name the Black Knight. The couple were wealthy landowners, and she resided over the estate, which is part of the Habsburg Empire, whose name should ring a bell for many of you. It is said that she visited, and this is something I couldn't really find out much about, but we understand already that she spoke German, um, and she did travel around her lands, but she visited Vienna and the influential Aunt Clara, who it is said who it is said introduced her to the inner societies of, um, well, the inner high societies of orgies and lesbian proclivities. True or false, who knows? Is proclivity the right word? I'm not really sure it is. But her beauty, Countess Bathory's beauty, was supposed to have preceded her um, at the time. And it was said that she was a highly sexual, sexualized young woman. And so it is here where things it would take, take a different turn, take it a more diabolical turn, take maybe the turn that all of you um, know more so from the movies, more, more, know more so from the lyrics of various metal bands, um, and things began to get a little bit darker and a little bit more spicy, as I said. And this is where we are not really sure um, of the myth and the legend as opposed to the fact, or whatever you want to call it. And while her husband is away fighting, she seems to have taken up with a local witch, um, a local witch called Anna Darvolia in the year 1601, who joined the household as her confidant, I suppose her religious advisor, um, various other things like this. I'm reminded a bit of the um, influence of Rasputin and his situation um, in the court of the Romanovs in the other podcast I did about 
um, his life. And here is where the stories of the treatment of the servant girls in her employment begin. And while her husband is away, she surrounds herself um, with a cohort of um, women, of confidants. And it would seem that there is a massive cholera outbreak at the time. And this, it would appear, allowed her to hide the debts of many of these young women, to hide the death count. Um, Servants from local villages were taken and often sold to the castle by poor peasant parents and into the countess's service. It is said that she had 400 young women as such such servants. Whereupon, as the legend goes, the beatings for small misdemeanours, a stitch out of place, etc., etc. A stitch out of place meant those very um, sewing needles would be forced um, underneath the fingernails and the small beatings and whippings began to take greater and greater effect. As the legend goes, the beatings for small misdemeanors escalated quickly. With the Darvolia at her side, it would seem um, she was the, well, how can we say, the kind of devil's accomplice, the um, the devil on her shoulder, encouraging her to lean more and more heavily into these um, regiments of torture that were meted out to servant girls. The beatings for small misdemeanors escalated um, and... Some poor servant girls would maybe, you know, have, I would imagine, spilt maybe some drink or um, placed some food on the wrong table, this kind of thing. And um, they would end up being abused, slapped, shouted at by the countess, whereupon eventually taken below uh, to the chambers, to the dungeons below by her, um, let's call her entourage, and tortured, pierced with red hot pincers and needle skin flayed and stabbed. Um... It's said at this time that the death count alarmed the local pastor so much he began to suspect something. But but at the time, um, to put it again into context, who cared about the death of peasant girls? And this local pastor is said to have said to her, "Um, Your grace should not have acted so because it offends the Lord and we will be punished if we do not complain to you and criticise your grace. And in order to confirm that your words are true. We need it to only exhume the body and you will find that the marks identify the way in which death occurred. The local priest, I suppose, kind of trying in his own way to warn Countess Bathory that we only have to exhume the bodies of these young girls to find out how they died, as apparently the death count was so huge that the local priest began to become worried at the amount of times he was called to the castle to perform whatever rites were needed. Of course, at the time, like I said, Countess Bathory was blaming the cholera epidemic, um, among many other things. She did have five known children of her own, but to be honest, trying to find information about them is pretty difficult. It would seem they occupy little column inches in the story. However, in 1604, her husband dies. Countess Bathory is 44 now at this stage, um, acquiring the nickname the Black Widow, ruling over a huge empire, moving from castle to castle, roaming the area with her entourage. It is said young servant girls disappear wherever she went, when she went to what is now Czech Republic, to Poland, to um. I imagine all areas of her domain or anyone she would visit, apparently young girls would go missing from whatever the local villages were. 
Um, now, how much of this, of course, is true and how much of course this is myth, we don't really know. But it would seem that her, well, the claim is her murderous entourage were capturing them from local villages and dispatching them at a rate faster than they could even bury them. And in some of the castles, it seems like they didn't even bother to do that. They would simply throw them over the castle walls into, I suppose, what would have been the rubbish tip or whatever over the side of the walls. Again, disputed. But on the other hand, reading up on on it, excavations below the castle Chiesta would seem to have given up over 50 bodies. She's now an entourage fit for any Hammer horror movie. Fisco, forgive my pronunciations, Fisco, the only male, a dwarf, and then a cohort of female accomplices. Elona Joe, um, who was the nurse, Dorla Cataline, and several others form, I suppose, what is said in myth to be a, a troop of sadists, um, which, as you can imagine, fits perfectly into the vaguely erotic cradle of filth interpretation of her story, the sort of hammer horror um, version of her story, which would have leaned or has done. You don't need to search too far for those movies. Leans heavily into that sort of heaving bosomed, vampired, widowed, peaked, um, pseudo vaguely erotic kind of S&M stuff. And there are rumours of you know, there are rumours of cannibalism. The Countess is said to have instigated the torture and then allowed her cohorts to continue the flaying, flogging, burning, or in many cases, suspending the women naked in freezing water in the dead of winter um, outside of the castle until they died. It was seen their bloodlust, of course, bloodlust, was out of control. All day long the virgins sit and feast on endless meals. The countess laughs and sips her wine. Her skin doth crack and peel. But when nighttime fills the air, one must pay the price. The countess takes her midnight bath with blood that once gave life. A better rhyming scheme on that verse for Venom, Countess Bathory, than maybe the first verse. But, but is that true or is that again myth? Because the stories. Um, have her bathing in the blood of these young women. Apparently, so the myth goes that upon cutting a young woman's face, the arterial spray sprayed the countess in this, um, sprayed her in this, I suppose, and she felt her skin to have improved. And so, again, it is said that they hung and suspended young women above her bath and would then fillet them one let allow them to bleed into the bath while the countess took her bats much like i guess pigs in a slaughter house and this is again all part of the mythology behind countess bathory that she the sort of vampiric mythology that she felt she wanted to um, bathe in the blood of young women in order to try and keep herself young and beautiful. And as I said, in the year 1609, um, who would believe the stories of peasants anyway? Certainly no court of law, no religious authority would have taken anything they said really, really seriously. Even though the local pastor was becoming a little bit suspicious, it, it is said with the amount of bodies that were being piled up. But did she really bathe in blood? Well, certainly the transcript stories from the trial tell of dungeons slaked with blood and gore. Yet it was in this year that her confidant, 
um, the witch in her life, Miss Darvolia, died. And this is where things, according to the story, then the myth, they escalate. Um, she is said to have died. And it's, I suppose, one must put it into the context of the, of the era, just like the way Victorian societies were fascinated with mediumistic um, experience. Seances and secret occult societies. The version at the end of the 16th century, the start of the start of the 17th century, with this was, I, I suppose, alchemy. It was um, a different variation of the occult. And this woman, Anna Darvolia, this witch, as they say, occupied that space. Um, the person whispering in her ear, telling Countess Bathory of people's ulterior motives. It's a more sort of good old-fashioned medieval versions of witchcraft and the full-blown vampiresque twist in the myth that comes after the death of her witch is that she was no longer happy with the effects of killing peasants and that their blood was not having the effect of keeping aging at bay that she desired this is of course what you would see in those hammer horror movies and only the blood of nobles could possibly do the same thing it is at this time or just around this time that her brother Stephen dies. Yeah, Stephen. That's a bit odd. Stephen Bathory. Um, and the little-known Jeff Bathory. Uh, no, well, I made the last one up. But, and she moved to um, a castle um, in Katicha, which they say had a sort of more sort of Renaissance kind of appearance and rich furnishings on the strategic point on the Austrian border um, to avoid... An awkward position, though, she ended up selling the castle for which she had never received any payment. So until 1610, she was managing still a huge estate. And that was the year when she was arrested. But let's just backpedal a little bit. And this is where the story becomes, well, I guess it's become certainly slightly unbelievable. And the fantasy parts ways with what maybe we should consider something of a reality. She starts a finishing school for young noble women. Yes, can you believe this? A finishing school for young noble women, which, if you consider, if you were to consider the story um, on very real terms, then she's just been basically slaughtering her way through um, local peasant villagers. Decides that their blood isn't really keeping her looking young enough, so decides to open, um, I suppose, like a Sweeney Todd the Barber-like finishing school. Maybe she needed a few quid as well. I don't know about that. But certainly killing the children of local peasants is very different to killing the daughters of young nobility. Living in her self-styled hell, the Countess dressed in black. Life so distant, death so near, no blood to turn time back. The castle walls are closing in. She's crippled now with age. Welcomes death with open arms. The reaper turns the page. Again, a nice rhyming style by Venom there. Countess Bathory. I think I prefer the second and third verses to the first one there. I'm interested in the way they use doth instead of does, just to create some sort of ye oldie worldy impression, um, as I imagine you would have found many young heavy metalers around Newcastle at the time using words as such. So you have to ask yourself, is she really going to start a finishing school for young noble women and then just start killing them? Well, this is what over 50 nobles accused her of doing. And could it simply be that they wanted her land, wanted her riches and wanted her out of the way, that she was something of a 
nuisance. This could also be true. Both can all both can probably be true, but certainly the idea that at some that she thought she was able to get away with just killing the daughters of noble of nobles. This seems a little bit far fetched, but then again I didn't live in 1609-1610. I'm not to contrary opinion uh, a vampire. So these young women, it is said, disappear in their dozens and outraged noble families contact King Matthias II and he orders an investigation and a man called Gregory Furzo is appointed as the investigator. Um, yet, oddly enough, he had already sworn an oath to her late husband to protect her. Torn by this, he agrees to spare her a trial. So she never had a trial. She never got to speak out in, well, not court, but I suppose whatever would have been, I suppose you could say it was a, co- a form of court, but she never got to have her day in court, to, so to say, and put her side of the story. She also never recanted for a single thing she was ever accused of. But so the story goes, he and his team wait outside the walls, the walls of the castle. And eventually the countess comes out with her disciples performing a ritual, an occult ritual. And they overhear it. And on inspection, Gregory finds the body of a mutilated girl at the gates. Two more just inside the gates. And when they approach, hear the screams of another from within the dungeon. And in the end, all her disciples turn on her, despite knowing that they would almost likely be put to death. She was accused of the murders of noble women, um, beatings and torture. Dorietta Sienta Zilana Elona Joe and the dwarf Jean Uvari admitted to all the charges. The women were burned alive at first, while the dwarf, due to disease and young age, young age, was first beheaded and then thrown afterwards into the fire. The clergy tried to force the Palatine to add the accusation of witchcraft, but Pastor Ponicanus even wrote a letter in which he described how witnesses should testify in his opinion during torture. As, of course, all confessions were acquired under torture, under duress. In the end, um, according to the testimonies and the, the records, and there are very real records, watch some of the documentaries and you can look at people actually reading the original transcripts. Um, over 300, 306 people record testimony damning her seems quite a lot for medieval framing, right? Well, some place the death toll at 50 to 80 and then others at over 600. If it is as many as 600, it would make her, I suppose, the greatest female serial killer in history, I would imagine. But the Countess, but the Countess never admitted to any of the alleged crimes. And until the end of her days, she was writing letters to the king demanding an acquittal. She was confined to the dungeon of her own castle in the end for the rest of her life, never recanting, never admitting to anything. The myth is she was entombed within the walls, alive, but this also seems to have been a fanciful end to the story. And even there are documents showing that Matthias II was demanding a re-examination of the case and further interrogations in July and December 1611, But as I said, there were reports with testimonies of uh, over 300 witnesses added to the case files. So in reality, she was spared a trial. She was never really actually convicted. And on August the 21st um, in 1614, 
Elizabeth Bathory passes away in the dungeon of her own castle. She was buried three months later, three months later on November the twifth, or November the twenty fifth, sixteen fourteen, in the crypt of the church of Katitia. Um, and local residents, outraged, demanded the removal of her body. She was buried again in sixteen seventeen in a gasied in the northeastern Hungary in the family crypt, the crypt of the Bathories. Yes, such a place does indeed exist. It sounds like um, more Bathory and Venom lyrics, but the crypts of the Bathories does exist. Yet, and you couldn't make this up, the myth endures. In 1995, her grave is dug up. Her grave is actually dug up in order to exhume her body. And there isn't one. There isn't one in the crypt. I kid you not, you could not make this up. He said the locals dug her up very shortly after her burial as it brought bad luck to the village and their own spirits in the afterlife to be residing in the same ground. Was she entombed in the family crypt? It would seem also not. All of these things, as I said, exist. So what is real and what is not? It's pretty difficult to say. I mean, we can, doing a bit of digging, you can see that um, it is untrue that her alleged sadism was a result of an incestuous relationship with her parents. The Ezed and Somlio branches of her family are separated by seven generations of over 200 years. Um, of course, anyone alive at the time would have witnessed some rather drastic scenes. But some things, if you really think about it or really look at the time, don't seem to make true. The story about the gypsy being sewn into the horse's stomach seems to be, could it be untrue? It's an expensive punishment. And certainly a horse was worth more than a peasant's life. Um, this was reserved for only somebody much more, um, much more wealthy. Um, if she had given birth to an illeg illegitimate child, you should become pregnant with a local peasant boy's child. Um, surely the family would not have documented that and she would have been simply sent to a monastery. There is no evidence of the orgies organised by Aunt Clara. There seems to have been little more than, well, little more than rumours of the excess, of the sexual excess in the court of Vienna. You also have to place yourself in the time, the timeline. And there were many epidemics, there were many plagues, um, this kind of thing. She had vast lands with many castles. Is, it, is, the, is she really going to spend her time murdering hundreds of um, servants, hundreds of hands, hundreds of people who are helping to keep the estate running? Um, again, on a practical term, seems a bit unlikely. In fact, the first mention of the you know, the, the story of the Countess bathing in virgin's blood was mentioned by a man called Laszlo Turowski, and it was over a hundred years after her death. Elizabeth was never accused of witchcraft or casting spells. So then, what is the truth? Um, if you kind of dig into the research, it would seem to suggest, historians kind of suggest, that the trial against Elizabeth was a more of a spectacle, a show trial, aimed at destroying the power and influence of the Bathories. The conspiracy was an intricate work of Palantine Thurzo, who took advantage of the moods reflected of the time. Um, a Hungarian aristocrat in Slovak lands did not arouse any sympathy, really. And the witch, the witch that I mentioned, Anna Darvulia, was a midwife and a healer from Vienna. Her speciality was surgery, bloodletting, burning wounds with hot iron, cutting out tumours and birthmarks. Could this be where the screams heard from the dungeon, um, the stories where they came from? 
but in actuality they were surgeries from the rather gruesome, no doubt, 16th century surgery table. In the chronicles themselves from the city of Katice, or the town of Katice, it is said that um, dozens of women died of typhus from one week to the next. The Palatine Terzo is said to have caught her red-handed, but there are also reports that the woman that he found had been attacked by a wild animal only the day before, and the patient survived, but her testimony did not appear in the final um, interviews. And it even it must be said that um, a court judgment of a noblewoman without, um, without her having her say was certainly an unprecedented event as well. So when you weigh all these things together and you read up read upon, upon the whole thing, it seems to suggest in the reality is that Elizabeth Bathory was more a victim of a political conspiracy than the greatest female serial killer of all time. And it was a conspiracy inspired by anti-Habsburg feeling. I'm not going to start throwing all those sorts of names at you, but, um, you know, they say that in 1602, it's during the reign of Sigismund Bathory, 1572 to 1613 that Transylvania fell into the hands of the Habsburgs. So there was all this um, internecine warring going on at the time. There was different families in control over different lands. The grandson of Polish ruler's brother, Andrew Bathory. Andrew, such odd names, um, died in 1516 through 1563. He became the Prince of Transylvania. He had planned to reunite the kingdom and regain the former importance of Hungary complicated stuff. Of course, there were other motives behind Terzo's involvement in the overthrow of the Countess, the financial one being the most prominent. It is said that the Hungarian King Matthias II, whose name we heard earlier, owed much money to Elizabeth after her husband's death. And at the beginning of the 17th century, um, it would seem, looking into it, there was a new law which allowed the royal treasury to take over the property of those convicted of crimes. When a nobleman was found guilty of killing someone from his family, he was sentenced to death and all his fortune was given to the ruler. If the murdered nobleman was from outside the family, then the king was entitled to one third of the property of the accused. Sounds like the similar kind of thing that happened with the early Inquisition lands. So, put all that together and what does it mean? It means that the king, Matthias II and Thurzo, definitely had a lot to gain from getting rid of Elizabeth Bathory. And certainly, um, he, the king got rid of his, great, his greatest creditor, or the woman to whom, the uh, noblewoman to whom he owed the most money, and the rest could divide their lands as spoils. But there are twists in the tale. It would seem that she wrote a will, give, granting everything to her children, which was her right and so therefore depriving Matthias II and the Palatine um, of her riches and her lands. But having said that, there are other theories. There are other theories as well. And one of those is that fact that Gregory Thurzo was a close friend of Ferenc Nadasdi, the, um, the ex-husband of Countess Bathory, um, who a day before his death had asked the Palatine, Palatine, keep saying Palatine, Palatine, to take care of his family, including Elizabeth Bathory, and that Servo, and that Thurzo was actually convinced of her guilt and was trying to protect her from the consequences of what would have been a shameful trial. And um, after meeting the woman uh, with her relatives, he agreed that she was mentally ill. Um, 
And don't forget such crazy things at the time. Um, like it said that um, Nadazdi, her husband, died of mercury poisoning. They, it was the, the favourite thing at the time to treat everything with mercury, which drove people absolutely insane. So what is the truth? What exactly is the truth about Countess Bathory? What is real and what is not? The truth, I would hazard, is again in the grey area. In fact, realistically, when you look more into it, it seems more like a political conspiracy, a land and a money grab. But it was a cruel time where many harsh deeds from the nobility could be hidden in plain sight. There was no such thing as human rights or rights for anyone beyond the nobility. So what she did or has claimed to have done is, it is perf it is possible, but 500 people or more, it seems unlikely. 50 perhaps is likely and many people um, no doubt throughout history could have reached that number bathing in their blood we really don't have to dig through too much history to find the insane actions of inbred nobility from marrying horses to child sacrifice so why could this not be true but that does seem a bit fanciful and these are the kind of vampiric myths the blood countess um the blood countess these persist in our modern society look at the stories that seem to back the QAnon myth, um, which have secret societies sacrificing children. Hillary Clinton eats babies to Bohemian Grove. We have modern day equivalents in the myth. But you know what? Epstein had an island, right? The truth, as they say, is often stranger than fiction. And so the myth of the bloody countess lives on in our memory. It has all the sex and death, sadism and intrigue. We instantly click on in 2022. Just how much of it is real? We will never know. But... If you do dig beneath the surface, you read beyond the headline and all of the sadism and blood and sex and, um, you know, this this enduring myth of this beautiful young woman trying to achieve eternal life through bathing in the blood of young women. Apart from the fact that the blood that would be needed perhaps to fill one bath might be 20 or 30 women and a little bit impractical. Never let the truth get in the way of a good story. But do a little digging and it would seem that, like many things of the time, despite a cruel time that it was, that this is, that this errs more on the side of political conspiracy, that it was a land grab, that it was a money grab, that it was a way to remove someone and take all their money and all of their lands and create these myths that persist in our modern culture. However, we aren't exactly sure. So the myth of Countess Bathory is episode 96 of Agitators Anonymous. Let me know who you think I should have a look at next and enjoy yourself some venom, enjoy yourself some battery, and maybe if you're feeling if you're feeling cheeky, stick on a little bit of Tormentor and crack open a beer. My friends, this is Agitators Anonymous, episode 96, The Life and Times, The Conspiracy and Political Intrigue, The Sex, Death and Sadism, and all the other tasty little things that make this such an interesting thing that echo through the centuries for us from 500 years ago. Countess Bathory. But I'm Alan Averill. This was Agitators Anonymous, episode 96. Episode 96, my friends. Go and support the show on www.patreon.com slash Alan Averill and you get other podcasts, all sorts of other stuff. I'm just a singer in a heavy metal band trying to make sense of the things I do not understand. And there are plenty of things we do not understand about the case of Elizabeth Bathory, the greatest female serial killer of all time or a victim of 
political and social conspiracy. You decide. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 